Hi everyone, thank you for downloading this show. We wanted to let you all know that this episode was recorded before the announcement of the summit meeting between Kim Jong-un and President Trump, set to occur before the end of May. Please keep this in mind as Dr. Green touches on key issues, including the ongoing confrontation between North Korea and the United States. It's a truly compelling conversation, so we hope you'll enjoy. Thanks again for listening. Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. And I'm Rich Verma. Each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business and thought leaders driving the Indo-Pacific from Delhi to Tokyo. Thanks, Rich. Uh, this week, we are honored to welcome to the Tea Leaves podcast, my good friend, Mike Green. Mike is one of the leading scholars and thought leaders on Asia and particularly on Japan's political landscape. He follows the Korean Peninsula and the Asia Pacific more broadly. Uh, Mike has an extraordinarily impressive resume, which I'm not going to try to read out for everyone here, but just to give you some of the highlights, he's served in the U.S. government, in particular as the special assistant to President George W. Bush, as the senior director for Asia on the National Security Council. He's worked at the Defense Department. He's consulted with a number of government agencies. He's also worked uh, in universities. He's a full professor at Georgetown. Uh, he is the uh, senior director uh, for a senior vice president at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And uh, he's done a number of other things. He's a world-renowned bagpiper. He is a, a martial arts specialist. He wears black ninja stuff and throws little darts around. That's not true, but he uh, is extraordinarily accomplished in a number of areas. He's also served as a staff member on Japan's National Diet. Um, he is also the author of what I would regard as the best book on the history of American strategy in Asia, which was published earlier this year called By More Than Providence, Grand Strategy in American Power in the Asia Pacific Region Since 1783. It's an amazing book, and I encourage everyone to go out and get it, but we're not going to start there. We're going to start a little bit with Mike's background. So first of all, Mike, how did you become interested in Japan and Asia? And uh, tell us the origins of that and how that's been sustained. Well, thank you, uh, Rich and Kurt. It's great to be on Tea Leaves. Um, I, I grew up in Washington, and my, um, uh, my mom had served in the U.S. Embassy in Rome before I was born. So I had a a kind of an inkling that I'd be interested in international affairs from a young age. Um, my interest in Japan um, kind of began when I was about 13 or so when I read the novel Shogun. Um, and I did karate a little in college, but I was very much a Eurocentric guy. My mom had served in Italy. My heritage is European. Uh, I studied French and Latin. Um, and I had this kind of passing interest in Japan because of martial arts and and reading books like Shogun. Um, and uh, it was an accident that I went there because I um, passed the written part of the foreign service exam as a senior in college. And as you know, it takes another year or two to do the oral exam and all that. So I was looking for something to do and just happened to find this program to teach in a rural high school in Japan. And I thought I'd do it for a year or two and then go uh, defend democracy and the folded gap against the Soviets in Europe. And um, it, 
changed my life because uh, Japan uh, is a country you peel back one layer of the onion and you find another one. And I just kept getting like, it's like the movie on the waterfront. I kept kind of trying to get out and they kept pulling me back in. And then of course my interest expanded from there to uh, Asia more broadly. Is that when you started working in the parliament as well? How did that come about? So that was, um, uh, I, I decided, and uh, I went to SAIS for my master's um, and uh, graduated, decided I wasn't going to do foreign service. So I, I got a Fulbright grant to study at Tokyo University. And um, uh, through a journalist I knew, a Japanese journalist in Washington, uh, got this gig working in the office of a member of the Japanese parliament, the Diet. And um, I happened to work for a guy named Shina, who was uh, the Sam Nunn of Japan. He was kind mm. of the defense wonk and national security wonk in Japan. And in the 80s, that was very unusual. Mm. Japan was still very pacifist. But um, I went to work for him right as the Soviets started building up their Far East fleet and the security issues became really serious. And it was fascinating. It's fascinating. I was allowed to go to diet meetings, closed meetings on on defense policy issues and defense strategy, but I was not allowed to go to meetings on the price of rice because that was real <laughs> national security at the right, time. Right. So it's fascinating. That uh, change your um, change your insights about uh, how decisions are made in Japan or how decisions are taken uh, on national security matters more broadly. It did in a number of ways. Um, f- first and most important, I realized, and this is in the late 1980s that um, while many of my colleagues interested in strategy and security were studying Europe or the Middle East, um, it was pretty obvious even then that the future uh, center of gravity in the international system was going to be Asia. And there were very few people I found in grad school, professors, students, officials I met, who really understood the dynamics of the Soviet Union, China, and so forth. So that, that, that was eye-opening for me. Um, and I also realized working for a politician on defense issues, um, how important um, local politics are. You know, mm-hmm. you study grand strategy or international relations theory, it's all very abstract. But when you're making those decisions in the Congress or the Diet, all politics is local. And it, it definitely uh, helps you understand how decisions are made in the full complexity. Rich, I can tell you, I've traveled uh, throughout Japan with Mike on a number of occasions, and occasionally we'll go into a room uh, of unsuspecting Japanese friends who are not aware of Mike's fluency in Japan, and suddenly Mike will talk, and he has an ability to talk like a taxi driver, like he's got an he's got a right. an he's, idiom and he's grounded, uh, yeah. yeah, and it, it's very impressive, and it always catches uh, uh, Japanese interlocutors a little off guard, mm-hmm. and they're it's you know it's this is not a person who has a passing knowledge that he has a deep uh, engagement in the language and the culture. Mike, we're going to get into foreign policy in a moment, but I do want to ask you, I did mention um, a couple of your other holiday, uh, your, your uh, hobbies. Um, you know, you are a, a world-renowned bagpiper and you're also a black belt in kendo. If you could explain how the two of those fit together in your life. I, I'm curious about how you became interested in stick boxing. I know that's a very traditional support uh, uh, sport in Japan, but how you learned it and then also how you integrated with these other interests. So in general, uh, bagpipes and sword fighting don't mix well together. <laughs> it usually ends badly for the bagpipes. Right. So they, I pursued them completely separately. Um, I mean, I'm tempted to say as a kid, I do anything to get a date. Um, but, uh, you know, I, uh, grew up in Washington 
Um, my grandparents were music professors. My dad was a Marine. And I just kind of listened to marching bands. And it turned out um, the U.S. Air Force had a bagpipe band that was very, very good based in Andrews Air Force Base. And they started a kid's band. So when I was 11, I asked for bagpipe lessons for Christmas. And my parents thinking, haha, this won't last, got me lessons for Christmas. And, you know, I ended up being pipe major of the uh, champion U.S. band and one of the top uh, bands in the world, uh, pipe band championships. I loved it. It was great fun. The The martial arts thing, I was always kind of interested in. Um, did a little bit of karate in college. And when I went to this... Uh, fellowship to teach in rural Japan in a high school. I was in the middle of nowhere. I didn't know what I was going to do for fun. The Japanese at the time had very few foreigners. They thought, oh, an American, we'll get him to join our baseball team. I'm terrible at baseball. I, I can I can pitch, but I can't bat at all. Too many years of tennis or something. <laughs> um, so that didn't last long. Uh, I did karate for all because I'd done it in college, but I had six-year-old kids who could swing kick me in the face <laughs> when we sparred. So that was humiliating. Um, and then about three, four months into my stay there, uh, one of the teachers at the school said, you know, the Japanese police national dojo, the best, you know, dojo for the best um, Japanese police officers studying fourth, fifth degree black belts in sword, spear, is about 40 minutes away from where you live. Do you want to come with me and start practicing? I said, sure. So first I did uh, Iaido, which is the sword, and then I did a bunch of different martial arts um, and, uh, it, it was, it was great. It was very, very intense. And a lot of it was spiritual. So it was pretty tough in terms of the language because you'd spar and practice and do kata, do, do, uh, but then you'd spend 20 minutes with your sensei talking about Bushido, hmm. the meaning of the way of the sword. And, um, uh, it was, it was intense. And I went to the Kyoto national championship to get my black belt, which was a great thrill. Cause I was one of the only foreigners, um, and uh, yeah, it's not a hobby you can keep up easily when you leave Japan, though. And it's not a very useful martial art if you get attacked on the street, because I don't walk around with swords and spears, <laughs> alas. <laughs> it's an incredible story, and, and what, a, what a background. And you've also got this uh, in, amazing new book, as Kurt said, um, by More Than Providence, which focuses on the U.S. role in Asia. I have a few questions about it. One, I just want to ask you about the title, uh, By More Than Providence. Tell us what it means. Uh, and then I also want to ask you, you, you really go at your starting point is, is way, uh, earlier than most people talk about the U S role in Asia. You know, I've heard people talk, you know, generally about, we've been a Pacific power since the end of world war II. You go way back. Tell us about that and tell us about the title of the book. Um, so I'll, I'll answer the second one first, cause it explains the title a little bit. Um, I, uh, like Kurt, like other academics who go into government, I came out of, in my case, almost five years on the NSC staff in the White House, thinking I need to write a book, but it's really hard as an academic to know what to write about at first, because a lot of the theories you study or teach turn out to be irrelevant <laughs> in the real world of policy. So I stumbled around with different topics. And then I thought, you know, the thing I'm really interested in personally, and the, and the thing that I haven't been able to find a book about uh, is um, how all the people who had the jobs Kurt and I had you know, thought about strategy and where some of these basic things we assert about free trade and forward presence come from. I mean, uh, and as Kurt can tell you, and as you know, of course, in the State Department, and the Defense Department, there's very little institutional history. There are offices of the historians, but they're kind of curators of archives. 
in the NSC, the White House, there's almost nothing. So I thought, you know, I want to sort of go back and trace the evolution of strategic thinking on these big issues that we're confronting now. And the idea being we need a grand strategy more than ever because of China's rise. And we're not going to have a grand strategy that's going to be a kind of elegant application of Thucydides or Metternich or Castlereagh or Clausewitz. We're American, darn it. And it's going to be dysfunctional and messy and divided government. So it really has to be based on an understanding of our own statecraft and our own history and our own practice and our own geography and values. So I thought I would kind of do a short intro chapter before 1945. Um, and as I started reading and going into archives and 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 reading things like the Federalist Papers, mm. Asia's in there. I mean, the Federalist Papers have reference to the rise of China and trade and the need for a federal union. Thomas Jefferson, I discovered just casually looking through Jefferson's um, online, Jefferson's correspondence, uh, a letter to George Rogers Clark in 1783 on the frontier during the American Revolution, warning the British were going to try to take control of the Pacific Northwest and we had to stop them. So I was fascinated to find that questions of trade, balance of power, forward presence in, in a different context, of course, but were being debated from the beginning of the Republic. Um, and so what was going to be a much shorter book became a, a story about um, these um, challenges uh, over 240 plus years. Um, and uh, in a way it's, well, it's a longer book, but I think it's a more important lesson. First of all, because we've been a Pacific power for a long time and we've been focused on balance of power strategies from the beginning. Uh, the message is we can do this. But also it shows all the dysfunctional mistakes we constantly make and we tend to make the same mistakes over and over. So any good history doesn't tell you exactly what to do, but it teaches you what to look out for and how to think uh, in terms of the flow of history and contingency and ideas. The title by More Than Providence, I when I write books, the last thing I think of is the title. Mm -hmm. uh, Kurt tried to help me. He had some. Uh, he had a good title for me. Um, and then I had beers with our common friend, Michael Hanlon in Tokyo. And I was like, man, I need a good title. And it just came to me. Uh, Bismarck said, America doesn't need a strategy because of special providence, because we have these two oceans. And so I made up this phrase by more than providence uh, uh, to indicate, no, we actually did have strategy. And we're not just sort of dumb, lucky uh, behind two oceans. It may have been six guys in Philadelphia and Boston, but nevertheless, from the beginning of the Republic, we were had people thinking long-term about how to compete in Asia. Um, and that's where the title came from. So Mike, I've, I've read it. I've read it many incarnations. I think it's, as I said, I think it's really a masterpiece and will help anyone who's interested in Asia understand um, both our history and our destiny. One of the themes that, you know, uh, uh, runs through the book is that, uh, uh, a uh, a key objective of American policymakers um, from the beginning was to prevent the domination of the Asia Pacific region by a hegemonic power, either from outside the region or inside the region, and that that's a clear um, uh, line that can be um, taken from the very first days of the Republic. I, I just ask you: um, Have we failed in that? Uh, objective recently with China's rise in Asia? No. And in some ways, we're repeating a pattern that um, is evident throughout the book. The leitmotif, the common strategic theme is prevention of a rival hegemon, as you say, from within Asia or from outside of Asia that would block our access 
to uh, the region, especially early on trade with Canton and China, but increasingly um, in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, preventing a hegemon who would turn the Pacific Ocean into a conduit for our trade and values going that way to a conduit for threats to come towards the Hawaii and the West Coast. And that's a pretty clear leitmotif. Um, but um, Americans have always wanted to do Asia on the cheap. And so we have grasped at things like um, uh, the Washington Naval Treaties, arms control agreements, or um, commerce, that somehow commerce would transform Asia and reduce the need for naval expenditures or forward bases, um, uh, or that somehow we could um, uh, have a restrained forward presence just on the island chain and not worry about the island chain encompassing Japan and the Philippines and not worry about what happened in the continent. We've always, we, are, we always go first for the cheapest possible way to prevent a hegemon. And we, in a cycle that repeats, learn we, it's not enough. And that's sort of where we are with uh, China. And you and Eli Ratner had a piece in Foreign Affairs recently that that flags this turning point in the national debate. Um, we've not lost. Uh, we're at the point where we've been with previous hegemons. Some of it ended peacefully, some of it not, where we realize that our expectations, we can do this on the cheap through the WTO and economic trade with China alone, through multilateralism, perhaps um, through a kind of condominium with Beijing where we where we sort of work out our differences to avoid confrontation. We've tried very cheap ways to avoid uh, pivoting to Asia, if I may say that. Um, and it's pretty coming evident that the cheap ways aren't going to work, that we're going to have to invest more in the military. We're going to have to invest more in trade agreements, in intelligence, in partnerships and relationships. Some of that we're doing, some of it we're not. Um, that's where I think we are historically. Um, I also think that China has gotten a bit of a pass because we've looked for cheap ways to avoid competing and that China's strategy may also change um, and not necessarily for the worse. I mean, we, in my view, if we push back in some of these areas, we may find China's not ready for confrontation. Um, so no, the story's not over, but we're at a tipping point. I want to ask you about uh, grand strategy towards Asia because you write a lot about it. You're an academic, you're an expert on it. But for folks that are from a non-academic field or haven't served on the NSC, uh, what is grand strategy? Where does it come from? What's it made up of? Uh, first question. Secondly, what is our grand strategy towards Asia today? Uh, and third, I think you touched on this in your previous answer. Have we kind of over-militarized our uh, our strategy. What what goes what goes into it? So um, a strategy uh, is from the Greek word strategos, which means from the commander. And um, uh, right there, you realize the problem a democracy has. And um, I cite de Tocqueville, who traveled across the United States in the early nineteenth century and commented on this new thing called a republican form of democracy, small r. Um, and said, when it comes to grand strategy, Americans and democracies won't be able to do it. Too much transparency, too many checks and balances. It, it everything about a democracy runs counter to the idea of strategos—that the commander gives an order and the whole system follows it. Um, 
Grand strategy is even more complex because grand strategy uh, is the employment of all, all instruments of national power, not just military, but your economic tools, so-called soft power, diplomacy, um, uh, which is even more complex, of course, because there's so many different actors and bureaucracies. So a, a lot of scholars, uh, some close friends of ours say grand strategy is impossible, especially for democracy. But I think that's wrong. I think grand strategy is um, is not only possible, but necessary. It is never perfect. It's always flawed. Mm -hmm. And the question is how flawed in totality. Um, we now have a strategic framework or a grand strategy framework that's been advanced by the Trump administration, uh, which they call the free and open Indo-Pacific. And in a way, I like it because it is um, derivative of past thinking about Asia by strategic thinkers like Alfred Thayer Mahan or George Shultz, or if I could say it, in some ways, even Hillary Clinton. There is this tradition in American um, strategy uh, of thinking about- You can say that here. Yes. yes that's okay. <laughs> well, of thinking about uh, one, of the, one of the tensions I mentioned in the book is that since the 1850s, uh, American strategy towards Asia has uh, become fixated with either working with China and the continent or working with Japan and the maritime domain. And it's pretty clear to our Asian friends which secretaries of state are in which camp. And Henry Kissinger and Jim Baker are in the continentalist work with China camp, Hillary Clinton, George Shultz in the maritime camp, focusing on India, Japan. Um, I'm not sure Americans, even in the State Department, recognize this, but if you're in Singapore or Delhi or Tokyo, they completely peg or recognize where they think certain secretaries are. Mm -hmm. So. This broad, free and open Indo-Pacific strategy, I would say, I don't think any of these people would want to own it, but it's in the Alfred Thayer Mahan, uh, George Kennan, George Schultz, um, Rich Armitage, Hillary Clinton line of thinking. Um, and that's why it is pretty well received in Tokyo, Delhi, and Canberra. But have we militarized it? Have we so, over? Yeah. So, the, so that's, that's a broad way of thinking about grand strategy, but the elements of grand strategy have to be what the military calls dime, diplomatic information, military economics. And we've only got the M, military. Um, and one of the most important parts of grand strategy is, is economics. And the tool that the American government can affect the most is trade and finance policy. And by pulling out of TPP and replacing it with nothing useful, the administration, despite its overall framework, has created a structure for thinking about Asia without the most important pillars, trade. And I think, although it's improving somewhat, um, the D, diplomacy, um, is a real weak point right now for us. Um, but in terms of great power thinking and um, aligning around maritime allies, um, my impression is that in Delhi and Tokyo and in Canberra, governments are not unhappy with the opening framing of foreign policy. They don't know how much President Trump himself has read these documents or agrees with it, but they're hearing the same theme from across the, the national security team. And uh, they, they like that. The, the, the content is woefully inadequate, though. Um, Mike, that takes me to a question about uh, focus and resources. So Rich uh, alluded to this, but you know, when I was in government, I found myself often frustrated if you looked at the time and the attention, which is the scarcest resource that we have of our senior leaders in government. Um, they were inordinately focused on issues in Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan. Now, those are critical without question, but 
um, in no set of circumstances would you argue argue that they take they should take ninety percent of the ban- available bandwidth. I'm curious, did you have those frustrations yourself? So so that's how I experienced, and this was what, during a time where uh, we were trying to do more in Asia, but the constant, you, you, you mentioned at the waterfront, I always thought that was for that, that line was from the Godfather in which Al Pacino says, right. I want to go and they keep <laughs> pulling me back in. That's how I felt about the United States um, with respect to Asia. They wanted, we wanted to do more in Asia, but we kept being pulled back in um, to the Middle East. Did you sense any of that? Did you feel that when you were serving at the center of power yeah. uh, during the Bush NSC? Listeners are going to wonder why the leading Republican and Democratic Asia hands are always drawn to gangster movie analogies. But <laughs> I won't go there. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I was in the NSC after 9-11 and we had been, the homeland had been attacked and thousands of Americans had been killed. And in those early years, uh, particularly in the early months, we assumed, I think many Americans assumed, this was the new battle tempo. We were going to be attacked constantly. And that the source of the threat was in Afghanistan and the Middle East. And so um, to me, the reality was we were going to have to uh, deal with that. And um, what I thought was imp- what I thought was important was that as we responded to 9-11 uh, and in the war on terror, that our position in Asia got stronger, not weaker. So um, we had, um, I think, the alliances with Australia and Japan and Korea, um, despite some friction in the last case, were all stronger. Uh, um, And polls show that, actually, in those countries. Um, Where I was frustrated was not with Japan or Korea. uh, Well, Korea was tough for other reasons, North Korea. But I was not frustrated with Japan-Australia alliance relations. We did very, very well. Uh, I was not frustrated with India, where we made big advances. Um, the frustration, frustration and the difficult part was Southeast Asia, which is always, um, as you know, a tertiary theater for the big thinkers in Washington, the people who come out of a Europe background or who focus on, uh, in the past, the Soviet Union. Um, and it was challenging getting people to frame an approach to Southeast Asia, which is such a critical subregion in Asia and in the world. It was it was frustrating getting people to frame approaches to Southeast Asia in, in, in on their own terms and not as part of the war on terror. That was tough. And I think we probably lost a bit of ground in Southeast Asia. But with the big powers, Republican administrations generally do quite well with the big powers and less well with the, uh, with the middle and small powers. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it was, it was, to, I didn't fight it. We'd been attacked. It was very emotional to be in the White House on 9-11. Um, and my view was, let's make our relationships, especially our alliances, as strong as possible as we deal with this threat. So, Mike, you just mentioned it, but a small power... And a big problem, North Korea, something that you struggled with when you were in government. I certainly did, and uh, others will to follow. Um, given where we are right now, provocative leadership, really taking things to the edge, um, concerns about the fact that they're developing missile and nuclear capabilities that could threaten the American uh, mainland. In fact, the CIA now uh, suggests that it can. What should we be doing right now? 
Well, connecting this problem to the discussion we were having about regional strategy and resources, the most important thing we have to keep uh, in focus is that this is not just a proliferation problem. It is fundamentally a geopolitical problem. And the solution, to the extent there is one, is going to be geopolitical. So, so much of the debate is about the threat to the homeland or proliferation. And so many of the solutions being advanced are myopic and narrow and would actually worsen our position. So, for example, the talk you hear from the administration of a preventive war, of a bloody nose, of military action, um, flows from uh, the conclusion by some in the White House that uh, we cannot tolerate a North Korea with nuclear missiles that can hit the U.S. Um, but what they're completely missing is that the only purchase we're going to have on this problem is when our alliances are strong. If our bilateral alliance with Japan and our bilateral alliance with Korea and then other key partnerships and alliances move from the 1951 system of bilateral hubs and spokes towards more of a collective security arrangement, uh, not NATO, that's a, that's a bridge too far, but towards more collective security, more trilaterals, more common missile defense. The more we move in that direction, the more purchase we have on the problem. It will, number one, deter the North Koreans because it's more capability. It will make it harder for the North Koreans divide us, to divide us. It will make it harder for China to divide us. It will break China's expectation that American alliances will wither as China's power grows and show the Chinese that, in fact, North Korea and China's non-action on North Korea are making American alliances come together in a collective security arrangement. Um, the bloody nose would break our alliances. It would completely undercut everything we're trying to do. It's already hurting our alliances because the South Koreans, who are understandably terrified of a nuclear war being prompted by the U.S., are starting to look to China to stop us. To so a, to, geopolitics. To, to, the listen, to the listeners who have only had a bloody nose, either running into a glass window or a fight on the playing field, describe uh, to them what it means in this context. So, yeah, thank you. So um, the administration, well, the president has promised that North Korea will not have this capability of, of a nuclear weapon that they can mount on a missile that they can hit the U.S. with. They're very close. The only piece they don't have is the ability to have the nuclear warhead re-enter the atmosphere from the missile in space and not burn up to survive and then hit a target. And they're, you know, the CIA has said they're months away, possibly. And so the president has said they're not going to get there. Well, we're not going to stop them with diplomacy. And it's pretty clear that sanctions, economic pressure, which has been very, very um, robust under this administration, they deserve credit for very robust sanctions. But it's pretty clear that's not going to stop the North Koreans. So, you know, senior people are arguing, and the president appears to be encouraging the idea that we can therefore get the North Koreans to stop by threatening to hit them militarily. The bloody nose phrase, which the White House doesn't use, it's come out of the Pentagon, um, refers to the idea that we're not going to get in a big war with North Korea, which could kill millions of people. We're just going to hit them for the first time since the Korean War militarily. We're going to, you know, it's a barroom brawl analogy. A bunch of tough guys come into the bar, you pick the littlest guy, hit them, give them a bloody nose to get the others to back off. That's sort of where this comes from. But the problem is we haven't, actually hit North Korea since the Korean War. And most North Korea experts say they'll hit back. And it could quickly escalate to 400 missiles raining down on Japan, uh, 12,000 artillery pieces and SCUD missiles opening up on South Korea, 
the possibility that North Korea transfers a nuclear device to ISIS or a terrorist group, any range of escalation paths, and that the and the Korea experts say, you know, we don't know what would happen, but we think there's a considerable chance they would have to fight to survive in their view. So it's a it's a bad idea. I think the debate in Washington is turning. I testified in the Senate uh, two weeks ago, and and even the most hawkish Republicans were not buying that this is a good idea. Um, but that's where it comes from. Where, where does that leave uh, dialogue and, and diplomacy? As you said, diplomacy may not solve this issue, but I've seen varying statements about how we will not talk, we'll talk if they want to talk. But I, I'm a little confused about kind of the value and uh, whether dialogue is even on, on the table uh, today. Uh, what, what, can you shed some light on that? It's a good question. And my sense is that the media in the US and in Asia almost always gets this issue wrong. Mm. For decades, and this, is, this goes for the administration you guys worked for, the one I worked for, Republicans and Democrats and the Congress and the media and our allies have sort of looked at the North Korea problem as if we have a toggle switch. And on the one hand, we're either pressuring them and doing military exercises and sanctions or toggle over to the left. No, we're not. We're backing off on all that. And we're talking to them to get a deal. Um, there is no toggle switch uh, because frankly, there is no deal. The North Koreans have demonstrated to you guys, to us, to Clinton and to George Herbert Walker Bush, they're not interested in a deal unless it's one that gives them nuclear weapon status. So that means that the value of dialogue is pretty small. It's a commodity. It's worth, we used to think it was worth dollars, hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars. It's worth a few cents. Mm. We ought to do it precisely for that reason. And the fact that Vice President Pence was apparently ready to talk to Kim Jong-un's sister doesn't bother me at all. Why not? I mean, we ought to, our allies want us to talk. Um, You know, frankly, with all the tweeting and the confused signals out of the administration, a clear line of communication in North Korea is not a bad idea. You may need it to avoid escalation. You may need it somewhere down the road for diplomacy that would lead to an actual negotiation. But there is no negotiation in my view. There is nothing to talk mm-hmm. about because the North Koreans are, they declared in 2012, they are a nuclear weapon state and they're not going to back off of that. So we should have dialogue and we should recognize it for what it is, a commodity, a piece of an overall strategy, but not the solution. In my view, at least in the current space, this could change in a few years with sustained sanctions, but but not in the next months or years. Mike, let me pull you back again. One of the interesting themes through your book and others that write about how Asians view the United States one of the curious features is a uh, occasional but persistent view that that at various instances the United States is been perceived to be in the midst of a hurtling decline after uh, the Korean War, the first days of the Korean War, after the Vietnam War, at the end of the Cold War, there was a sense that we were um, uh, that we had lost the economic competition. I think there is now privately a concern in Asia that no matter who would have won the election because of concerns about trade and domestic um, issues in the United States, that we were going to be more focused away from Asia. I'd be curious about what you think is at the root of that and how you make your own judgments about American staying power and commitment to Asia going forward. Is this um, a period in which, you know, uh, the perceptions are inaccurate and we will continue to play uh, a critical uh, dynamic role throughout Asia? Or is this the beginning of 
uh, a more substantial withdrawal of the United States playing such a regular uh, and immediate role in the affairs uh, of this dynamic and important region. So this is, I don't know, the sixth, seventh, or eighth time in our history that the rest of the world or parts of the world have said, that's it. America's game is over. We're entering a period of decline. Um, I'll spare you every case, but just in our lifetime, um, uh, after the Vietnam War, uh, people assumed in the 70s, we were uh, late six, in the late 60s after Tet into the 70s, we were done. Um, Nixon completely rebooted and sort of stunned the world by opening to China and resetting the strategic um, chessboard. And then Ronald Reagan, um, uh, with uh, his doubling down on alliances and forward military presence in response to the Soviets, um, at a time when people were saying U.S. is in secular decline because we don't make TVs and we don't make things as much, and now Japan does, they completely misunderst- misunderestimated, as my old boss used to say in the White House, <laughs> completely misunderestimated the... Um, yeah, I can't be fired anymore. Um, the uh, the the resilience in the American system, um, the global financial crisis. I think Beijing read that in two thousand eight and nine as the beginning yet again of secular decline, and I think they guessed wrong. This the strength and resilience is very evident to friends in 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 Delhi and Canberra and Tokyo and Seoul and Beijing when they look at things like foreign direct investment. People talk about trade with China and the shifting of trade to China, but trade is dating, foreign direct investment is marriage. And when you look at FDI flows, they are overwhelmingly uh, trans-Pacific, global, US, ASEAN, Japan, Australia. China's in some ways a small player in FDI, and despite the enormous market. Um, if you look at the American public, uh, even after the election of Donald Trump, which many people thought was a kind of isolationist turn, the American public support for free trade, for defending our allies, for all these things went up. It's quite robust. Um, And then our history, which I try to show in this book, we compete. We're a little bit slow (laughs) sometimes. We're a little bit dysfunctional, but we compete. Um, And uh, so I I don't think we're at the beginning of a period of secular decline. Um, We do have a challenge in our Current president, who is an anti, the most anti-establishment, anti-globalist president we've had. People compare him to Andrew Jackson, but I think maybe in our history. Um, but his administration has, at the same time, pursued sort of very conventional balance of power uh, strategies and strengthening of alliances. It's not as different as people thought. The other challenge we have is that the rise of China is by far uh, the the greatest. Um, a challenge we've had uh, in our history. When we came into Asia, the Qing dynasty was declining. Then we then we saw the British, and then the Germans, the, the Russians, the Japanese, Soviets. You know, China was at the center of Asia uh, when we arrived, but declining. Um, China's returning uh, as a power. It will not be at the center of Asia the way it was a thousand years ago or even 250 years ago, because now it's surrounded by powerful nation states, many of them democracies that don't want to be tributary states. But it is a much bigger problem than we had with the British, the Germans, the Russians uh, in the past. You mentioned uh, Delhi, Canberra, uh, Tokyo, uh, I assume not by accident, but by by design. And um, 
It's an interesting alignment, uh, especially with the U.S. thrown in there. How important is that group of four countries as you uh, think about the threat that we're facing today? I, I think it's incredibly important. And if there is one strategic lesson uh, I would hope the administration would take away from my book, it's it's that they think about the distribution of power in Asia. We got spoiled after the Cold War uh, because we thought we were in a unipolar era and um, and in many ways, we are still the preeminent power in Asia. Um, but for most of our history, we were dealing with a balance of power in Asia that was multipolar. And some of our best strategists, whether it was Mahan or Teddy Roosevelt or Kissinger and Nixon, recognized that in a multipolar Asia, and you know, when we have relations with Tokyo, Delhi, Canberra, and even Beijing that are better than their relations with each other, we have uh, the casting vote. We have the the position to shape the balance of power. And, you know, Nixon wrote that in 67. People remember his foreign affairs article because he highlighted the possibility of opening it to China. But what he was really saying is, uh, although he didn't use the word multipolarity, a a lot of powerful countries in Asia, that's good for us. And it's interesting because Chinese scholars and government officials talk about a multipolar world with, with China as one of the poles in Asia, and that the US and China will split the difference, and China will be sort of the representative power in Asia. The Chinese scholars hate the idea of a multipolarity in Asia, that India, Japan, Australia and Korea, uh, Indonesia um, are players and are powerful players. So we may not necessarily align perfectly with Delhi, as you know well, <laughs> but the reality is we align a lot better with Delhi than Delhi does with Beijing. And Delhi aligns a lot better with Tokyo. And it's not an alliance. It's not an alignment. It's not a collective security arrangement, unless the Chinese really force it. But it is a distribution of power and of relationships that could be very favorable to us if we invest, as you did, Rich, in our relationships with India, with Japan, with Indonesia, Korea. If we play the field and don't just play the China game, that will make our China policy much more stable and, and much more productive, frankly. Um, so very few people come into these senior jobs the way you guys did, thinking about Asia as a chessboard. Um, they tend to take issues or countries in one -off, uh, uh, as one-off problems. And uh, we can do grant strategy. We've done it. But we have to think regionally. We have to think of this as a dynamic region that we can affect. Mike, that's terrific. You've given us some wonderful insights, a lot to think about in terms of grand strategy, uh, government service, uh, bagpipes, uh, <laughs> uh, martial arts, and uh, essentially uh, what it takes to live an interesting life. We're so, we're so grateful, and we urge all our listeners who want to know more about uh, the critical American role uh, in uh, uh, Asia to go out and quickly get a copy of By More Than Providence. It's available through Amazon or at any of your bookstores. Be sure to bring uh, a good uh, uh, solid bag with you because it's heavy, but you'll enjoy uh, every page of it. it. It's a great book. Thank and you. Really appreciate all the time and effort you put into it. And uh, I want to thank you, Mike, and thank you all for listening. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.